0: Hello, and welcome to Mighty Episode 20 of the Unmasking the Abuser podcast. I'm Dr. Dina McMillan. As you may know, I'm a social psychologist, a relationship consultant, and an expert on domestic abuse and violence. Today is going to be a little different from other episodes because it's not primarily about abusive relationships or abusers. I called today's episode The Gift of Fear as a nod to Gavin De Becker's book of the same name. Gavin De Becker is an expert on the prediction and management of violence. Gavin contacted me after my own book, But He Says He Loves Me, was published. He told me he approves of the premise, teaching women to recognize the specific tactics used by dangerous men to lure women into relationships. He said he called his own book, The Gift of Fear, because he wants us all to recognize that the instinct to be wary, to turn away, To run away from an active threat is something to be embraced, not something to avoid. He believes we need to listen to our natural instincts more, not less. Listening and acting in a timely fashion can keep us safe and even save our lives. That's why I decided to cover the topic of fear in this episode. We live in a society that for decades has been pressuring us to calm our fears. Our culture wants us to view fear as irrational or old-fashioned or a sign there's something wrong with us. It wants us to redefine fear as misunderstanding. But what do we lose if we give in to this? Is removing fear also encouraging us to place ourselves in danger? Is it placing rose-colored glasses too firmly on our eyes? If we ignore our instincts when they're telling us we are in a situation that could be dangerous, aren't we setting ourselves up for manipulation and coercion and possible harm? If you've ever read Grimm's original fairy tales, they were nothing like the sweet and fluffy stories Disney trots out. The original stories were scary. They had forests full of lethal creatures. Children were taught through these tales that mistakes and disobedience can lead to terrible consequences and that sometimes awful things happen even to nice people. The classic fairy tales didn't teach that all people are good or that all monsters disappear just because you turn on the lights. Fear is a natural part of life. It teaches us to be careful and discourages us from trusting those we should actually avoid. Fear breeds caution. Fear can get us to reconsider our choices. Fear can keep us from actively contributing to our own destruction. So let's talk about fear and why we have to stop treating it like an unwelcome guest. You're listening to the Unmasking the Abuser podcast with Dr. Dina McMillan. If you've listened to my previous episodes, You'll notice the superpower I've been helping you expand is also going to help you grasp the concepts we're discussing today. But even if this is your first time, this is information everyone needs to have. If you find today's information useful, or if you have a question, comment, or even a complaint, please email me at unmaskingpodcast. At gmail.com That's unmasking podcast all one word at gmail.com. I hope you'll share this episode with family and friends. I believe the insights we're covering today are crucial and need to be disseminated as widely as possible. I was inspired about today's episode because I'm currently crafting an online course through a university, on resilience the first module will be a free course a taster that will stand alone in providing some core concepts the other modules the paid segments are going to focus on aspects of resilience in work situations that can improve your ability to lead effectively in an ever-changing and highly tested environment something everyone is experiencing at the moment We're targeting the paid online course for supervisors, managers, and executives. I'd argue many of the concepts will also be relevant for parents and anyone with authority over other people, whether paid or volunteer. Resilience is the ability to not only survive, but also to thrive in situations of change or even possible threat. That's where it gets interesting for me. Resilience as a concept is relevant to what we're discussing today because at a base level, the primal parts of our brain initially perceive all change as an active threat. How much of a threat varies according to the individual and the circumstances, but that general response is fairly universal. To put it bluntly, Our fundamental reaction to change is to first experience fear. And I think fear is getting a bad rap in modern society. Most of the resilience training I've researched online has discussed and demonstrated ways we can calm ourselves, soothe our fears, handle new situations and circumstances by convincing ourselves there's nothing to be afraid of. Some offer breathing exercises and mantras and consciousness maneuvers to maximize the self-soothing being recommended. Yet I haven't been reading or seeing anything instructing us in simple ways to differentiate between a real threat, a genuine threat, and an imaginary one. How to do what's necessary to figure out whether or not the suggested changes being brought into our lives, our environments, our workplaces, are something we should embrace or something we'd be smart to treat with enormous caution. Maybe the course developers are afraid of offending someone, but these resources are handling change and the fear it generates as if it's always something to conquer And overcome. They're assuming our natural instincts are illogical and faulty. Calm down and just do what you're told could be the general motto. That can't be right, I said to myself. Working in social psychology and domestic violence, I know that when we experience an instinctive recoil response to a person, a suggestion, or a situation, it can keep you safe if you listen to it and act on it. The training in unmasking the abuser is all about highlighting genuine threats and giving key instructions on how to handle it if or when it comes into your life. I often get approval and applause when I apply that philosophy to potentially abusive romantic partners. But why are we assuming it stops there? Why isn't anyone teaching us how to properly assess the difference between positive suggested changes and negative ones? How to handle saying no? What to do when we're asked to do something in our personal or professional lives that hasn't been properly assessed for its impact or its possible outcomes? What if we're flinching at these suggestions or commands, not because we're narrow-minded or rigid or biased, but because we're sensing their potential for real harm? Why are we giving so much airtime and cultural focus to people who skip past convincing us and move straight into coercing us into accepting and applauding anything new that's proposed? Why are we being taught every existing system is so flawed it needs to be both replaced and erased? Isn't that what abusers do? Isn't that what con artists and manipulators do? Present only a single perspective as good without giving us enough time or information to weigh our options. Rewarding us for submitting and punishing us for not complying quickly enough or completely enough for their liking. Isn't this all trying to get us to override our instincts? Now, do any of these points resonate with you? Are you saying to yourself, I hadn't really thought about it that way? Or perhaps you're saying, Ha! So it's not just me that noticed that something's off. Once you become aware It's easy to start noticing there are so many forces encouraging all of us to put ourselves in situations that are genuinely risky. My regular listeners know this is a really bad idea when it comes to romance. I'm here to tell you today, it's a really bad idea anywhere in our lives. Now let's take a closer look at our fear response. Fear isn't something you only register in your mind. You feel it in your body too. Your heart rate increases and becomes strong enough for you to feel it beating in your chest. Your breathing becomes rapid and shallow. You may feel a sudden temperature flash of heat or cold. Sometimes fear hits you in your stomach or your gut, generating a feeling like someone physically punched you. I talk about fear responses in my workshops and seminars when I discuss how our brains process information. I do this using the triune brain theory, a concept devised by Paul McLean in the 1960s. I admit it's a controversial theory that separates our brain functions into three separate areas of processing. Part one is the neocortex the language-based, higher-order, critical thinking part of the brain that assesses, judges, and problem-solves. The second part is the limbic brain that stores long-term memories and controls and registers emotions. The third part is the more primal brain, called the lizard brain or, as I call it, the reptilian brain. That handles immediate reactions and responses to environmental cues, as well as autonomic functions like breathing, heart rate, and digestion, among others. Some neurologists and neuroscientists criticize the triune brain theory as being too simplistic, but I find it useful. It's still the easiest and most accurate way to help people understand the various ways our brains perceive, process, and experience what occurs in our lives, both within us and in our environment. Now, fear is the province of the reptilian brain. There's a shorthand that's used to describe the functions of this primal part of our minds. In addition to its autonomic functions, the reptilian brain is said to handle the four Fs, fight, flight, food, and fornication. In other words, this part of the brain is responsible for basic fear reactions, alerts us when we're hungry, and handles our sexual arousal and drive. Calling it the four F's is a cute, pithy, easy way to remember this information. But I feel it's a little too clever and too brief to accurately help us understand fear I'm sure you've heard that fight or flight term before. I don't think it's new to anyone listening. But our fear responses contain more than just fight or flight, and we need to dive a bit deeper. Understanding how our brains process fear and honing our skills to identify and handle fear reactions when they occur are crucial. Let me explain. There are actually a range of responses our minds have to the perception of a threat. Once again, remember, change is one of those perceived threats. Of course, there's fight. Put up your fists, resist, spread your feet and center yourself and refuse to give ground. And there's flight, an immediate visceral reaction to turn away from whatever it is that's scaring us our feet will automatically start pumping to get us as far away from danger as possible. But there's also freeze, like a deer in the headlights of a car, standing in the road with huge eyes, unable to force its feet to move or to do anything that might draw possible predators' attention to itself. Humans freeze too sometimes, finding themselves unable to run away or even to raise their arms to fend off the blows, whether the aggression is physical, emotional, or psychological. Here's another F response to threat. Familiarity. Responding to danger in a scripted manner that replicates whatever we did in similar situations in the past. For many of us, especially women, we were taught since we were tiny, to be pacifying and apologetic and appeasing towards any threat. Even if we've worked hard to teach ourselves to behave differently now, we may not always do it. If a threat catches us unaware, we may be shocked to find ourselves with the needle running over the deepest screws on that old vinyl record, and will seem like we're observing a stranger as we adopt a submissive posture, soften our voices, apologize profusely, even when we weren't wrong. We may find ourselves making familiar excuses later to the other people that observed what happened and explaining why the person who did the wrong must be excused for what they did. Familiarity in itself is a hazard always lurking in the background. Have you ever had something shocking happen? Something that threw you for a loop and then everything around you seemed to shrink for a little while? While you were in that state, you may have found yourself automatically driving to a house you moved away from years ago, undergoing feelings you thought were left well in the past the shock caused your brain to default back to the familiar. I've seen this happen to people who've worked hard to become more confident or who've learned to self-soothe when they experience anger so they don't react aggressively. Sometimes they get thrown by an unexpected threat and revert back to those well-worn pathways they'd sworn to themselves they'd left behind Forever. Another F reaction to fear is to try to fit in. This is both a psychological and social phenomenon. There are a wealth of studies on this strong, ingrained tendency to look around us when something potentially dangerous occurs to see how other people are reacting. If they seem alarmed, we'll get scared. If they take it all in stride, We'll calm down and we won't panic. This response based on others is called social proof. It's a reaction so well programmed into our brains, it can easily be manipulated. We'll talk about this a little more later. There's a last F that's also worth discussing. When something happens that scares us, sometimes we'll try to frame it or reframe it. Framing it is another way of describing our ability to perceive, organize, and communicate both to ourselves and to other people about whatever is causing us to feel anxious or afraid. Framing puts a border around whatever we're discussing. It allows us to classify it, to put it into a known category. With fear, we may frame the issue as an immediate crisis, for example, or a challenge, or a short-term worry, or a long-term threat. Anything we frame and classify carries with it the ability to reframe it, to alter how we perceive, respond, or discuss whatever it is that's making us uncomfortable. Many of the resilience courses and exercises I researched were strongly focused on teaching their learners how to reframe perceived threats, especially those that arise because something is new or different. They stressed that these things aren't necessarily bad or destructive. They taught how to quiet the instinctive fear response to change, classifying them as a challenge to be handled rather than an issue to fear or to automatically reject. The courses offer different actions to help participants address whatever occurs in a calm, rational, and ultimately accepting manner. The last thing they want is for their participants to react with the usual fear responses, fighting it, fleeing from it, or even freezing. What's being broadly encouraged is for all of us to handle social and cultural changes, even wildly dramatic shifts, by looking to others, especially to those in authority and to those advocating for these changes. They're teaching us to make this our default response, something that is automatic and familiar. If they're successful, these courses and other cultural influences will condition us to handle all proposed changes by automatically submitting and perceiving the change not as a threat, but as an improvement that should be welcomed. Now, framing a change using higher-order thinking involves putting it in context. This was most definitely not discussed in the courses I found. This means spending time and effort to gather evidence on on whatever's being proposed, weighing whether it's being presented accurately or not, and considering its probable impact on our lives. We would think about how far it can reach, what it could alter if we let this new thing stay or force it to go. What are the potential flow-on effects? What else will be touched by this? And how will the current changes Alter things in the future. Critical thinking demands we ask ourselves, if I give in or if I resist this change, what are the likely outcomes of each response? How will this change get along with what's already in my life? If I accept it, will the forces of change be content with the space I give it? Will it really settle for whatever it's asking for now? Or will its demands grow? Will it try to take over? Framing and reframing a proposed change using critical thinking takes skill and practice. This kind of critical thinking is part of the superpower I've been helping you develop with these podcasts. It's looking at a person's behavior in the present, and knowing if you allow something to occur now, it's going to impact a lot of other things in your life and it will change your future. If this person is an abuser, their presence and influence will dominate and overwhelm and push out everything and everyone else. Why aren't we considering the same factors regarding proposed social changes That have been inundating us for the last decades and longer. Before you think this is too complicated or too much to ask of you, think of it like a parent when a child wants to bring home a puppy. Before you say yes, you probably start thinking about all of the changes you'll have to make to the house now in order to accommodate an animal that will need to be fed, walked daily house-trained, given affection, taken to the vet, combed, bathed, loved. You consider its impact on your family in the future. You look at the puppy's breed and possibly realize the current small size is deceptive. This breed grows large and is a pack animal that hates to be left alone. All of this has to be taken into account before you make your decision. The fact it's currently cute and cuddly and your child wants it and promises to care for it usually won't be enough. It's interesting that adults would think that way, use these critical thinking skills about adding non-human family members to their homes, but not with regard to other issues that can also take over our lives. A lot of our response to proposed changes or even potential threats will be shaped by what we see others doing, how others we identify with react. That's why I put a lot of emphasis on getting support if you want to act on what you learn in this podcast series with regard to potentially abusive partners. Your mind needs to be calmed and reassured that you're not seeing monsters under the bed. Without adequate support, most of us can be pulled back into groupthink and allow a potential abuser into our lives because our family and friends have been socially conditioned not to recognize the active threat, even when it's standing in front of them. Without support, we're at risk of being pressured into letting danger, into our lives. But regarding change, we work hard to talk ourselves off the ledge, so to speak, reminding ourselves not to be afraid of change. For more than half a century, Western culture has worked hard to present change as necessarily meaning progress and defining progress as a good thing. We've taken the advances in technology and applied those same principles to our culture. As someone who studies and examines cultures and relationships and changes, I can say here, I think we need to stop telling ourselves all change is good and end this insistence on resisting our brain's perception of change as threat. That may shock you but I think we need to give in to our primal minds and again consider all change as a possible threat. Yes, you heard me correctly. I said we need to stop resisting our brain's natural resistance to change. It made it a primal automatic response for a reason. I've begun thinking this way because another threat to a thriving society is passivity. I cannot count the lives I've seen ruined by people with a philosophy that things always work out in the end, or things happen the way they're supposed to, or saying in Australia, ah, she'll be all right, mate. Not considering the wider or longer term consequences of changes and not having a firm grasp on the various aspects of fear make us all vulnerable. This type of thinking ignores the brain's primal alarms about potential harm and forces it to be quiet. It convinces itself. It reframes the change, the potential threat, using logic and ration, the neocortex, to accept all changes positive and all movement as improvement. That's nonsense. What's more, it's dangerous nonsense. Society keeps putting the spotlight on whatever changes it wants us to accept without question. It highlights and celebrates and pays lots of attention to the desired change. It gives those who promote that change and echo the buzzwords about how positive it is awards and applause and celebrity. It either completely ignores the issues that will be caused by these changes or finds a way to dismiss or even vilify anyone who resists or draws attention to the reality being minimized, disguised, or dismissed as inconvenient truths. My usual listeners will recognize that tactic. Have you got it? Yes. It's misdirection. It's that illusionist trick that's also so loved by abusers where they focus the target's attention on good things, on sparkly things, on desirable things, so they won't notice the terrible things going on at the same time. The target won't realize until she's been captured by the abuser that the domination of hyper-jealousy, criticism and contempt, coercive control, were also occurring at the same time. They were purposely being distracted. They were being rewarded for allowing their attention to be diverted. They were also punished if they didn't comply quickly enough or if they dared to ask probing questions. They were being strongly, forcefully, trained, and conditioned. Our society is doing the same thing to all of us and has done for decades. We're being asked to accept all changes as positive and all threats to our beliefs, values, and even our most fundamental knowledge of ourselves. We're told it's all obsolete and should be replaced with something more relevant and fair. But we're not really allowed to ask questions about what's being suggested as more relevant and fair without facing everything from being shunned to being openly vilified, being called bad names and humiliated, facing social ostracism, or even the loss of employment. I don't know about you, but this sort of totalitarianism scares me. It has for years, once I noticed what was happening and how the social tactics advocating rapid social change line up exactly with the abuser's tactics I've been teaching. Teaching real resilience to leaders, I have to instruct them to use critical thinking to demand the time and resources to make the best, most lasting decision. I have to give them tools to help them maintain a panoramic view, not a laser-focused one. The panoramic view considers how new changes will impact everyone in the environment not just automatically accommodating the requests or demands of the new prioritized group. It considers possible flow-on and realistic outcomes, good and bad. It's all about making measured decisions with viable alternatives already considered if an unexpected negative consequence arises. This sounds simple and rational to me, but it's getting harder to do. I'm risking a lot even telling you this is what I do. Critical thinking is considered pushback. We're being socially conditioned to comply without complaint. No pushback allowed. I have confidence that you, my audience, can understand what's lost by just appeasing anyone or any social movement that makes demands. Anytime an individual or a group or a social trend uses the same or similar tactics as abusers, that should incite more fear in you, not less. They talk about not rushing to judgment. We should also not rush to acceptance. We need to get as much evidence as possible and encourage critical thinking before we make potentially life-altering or society-altering decisions. That's where the influence I mentioned before is crucial. Social influence is so key, so central to our primal understanding of the world, it can be incredibly difficult to resist. That's why people who want you to do something from marketers to politicians to social movements put enormous resources into convincing you that everyone else is doing it. I remember an old ad campaign that ran when I was a kid. They told the audience four out of five doctors surveyed recommended their product. People bought the product in droves assuming 80% of medical professionals approved of its effectiveness. That's not exactly what they said, though, is it? Their ad may have contained feedback from only five doctors in total. Some of those doctors could have been paid for their endorsement. We have no way of knowing who those doctors were or what incentives were used to get their tick of approval for the product. And of course, the advertisers could have made it all up. No one was checking and the doctor's names weren't included in the ads. The advertisers just knew how people would interpret their message, including the fact they trusted more if they didn't claim 100% approval and they used that knowledge to sell their product. Social psychologists know we're all heavily influenced by the people around us, whether we know it or not, like it or not, believe it or not. People in power are aware of this too and understand the various influence mechanisms that can help embed their sanctioned beliefs and desired behaviors into the parts of our brains that are responsible for 90 to 99% of our life choices. That's your limbic brain, and to a lesser extent, your reptilian brain. I'm currently seeking funding to do a free online course on influence so I can teach people how we're all being instructed, persuaded, manipulated, and coerced by those with an agenda, from advertisers to political groups to leaders of social movements. I won't tell you what to think. I just want to show you how to spot the strings they're using to move us all around without our permission or even our awareness. Combining the concepts of fear, influence, and building your superpower to protect you and give you a better life, here are my suggestions. First, don't assume all change is positive. It may not be. In fact, you're better off assuming it's not until and unless you're able to satisfy any questions in your mind regarding its impact on your life and that of your family. Second, don't be passive. When someone suggests a social shift, actively seek out more information and don't trust the sources advocated by the group soliciting the changes. Would you ask an abuser's family and friends whether or not he's a good guy? I hope you'd look for more objective recommendations. Do the same for anything being introduced. Especially look and consider the points being made by those in opposition to the proposed changes. Third, don't assume group rah-rahs and awards and endorsements by Hollywood celebrities means something is good. They have their own reasons and their own agenda for supporting things and their own funding sources. Whether or not they approve, seek out more objective information. Fourth, until you've made up your mind, try to avoid influence mechanisms that are attempting to get you to accept whatever it is. That includes stories with main characters who support whatever it is, songs and music videos with whatever it is featured, and attempts to normalize whatever it is by having it in the background of something you're watching, reading, or listening to. These are all powerful ploys, and the people who include these tactics are well aware of it. Fifth, be alert for the same type of warning signs you would with an abuser. One, anger in response to you asking questions. Two, attempts to force your acceptance or rush your decision. Three, bribes and promises to get you to accept. Four, warped, inaccurate information supporting whatever it is. Five, punishment for your desire to seek alternative perspectives or get more information. Six, silence or attempted shutdown for asking how acceptance will impact everyone else involved. Seven, use of powerful methods, attention, affection, acclaim, to demonstrate that only those in the new promoted group matter. Notice if they're given preferential treatment, forgiven for even glaring infractions or rule-breaking, and focused on constantly. And above all, be alert for attempts to control, to change the rules, laws, policies in order to accommodate this newly promoted behavior or group without adequate consultation or efforts to consider the impact on the wider population. A rule of thumb, the quicker you're shut down for asking questions or resisting immediate compliance, the bigger the danger you're being asked to blindly accept. Like the difference between a genuine prince charming and what Karen Sammonson calls prince harming, there are ways to tell if a proposed change really is progress. With progress, questions and concerns are welcomed before a final decision is made. Attempts are made to accommodate those who don't agree with the change. The whole process is transparent, including any supporting evidence on why the change or changes should be made. Opposition is met with consideration and follow-up action, addressing the issues raised instead of punishment. It's also key that those presenting the different sides at any forum or meeting, etc., do their best to remain neutral. Endorsement by the organization presenting the forum is cheating, and those in power know it. Our minds subconsciously respond to perceived authority, which is what happens when the person or persons monitoring the discussion take an obvious side. With progress, you should walk away with the right to reject whatever is being proposed without social ostracism, name-calling, or continued attempts to get you to change your mind. So, are we clear? This was a lot to think about today. I hope you registered with my talk of critical thinking and positive progress that I do believe in positive movement forward. However, I do not advocate coerced change that doesn't realistically consider the wider or longer term impacts. Email me and let me know what you think. I'm at unmaskingpodcastgmail.com. At Thank you for listening. I'm Dr. Dina McMillan.